Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We've got a phenomenal show planned for you guys this evening. We're going to be discussing artificial intelligence with one of the most credentialed authors in the industry. If you're here listening to this on the YouTube live version with us, thank you so much. Put a lot of planning into these episodes. So sit back, grab a drink, enjoy this conversation. The Human Experiences in Session. My name is Xavier Katana. Our guest for tonight is Dr. Clifford Pickover. Dr. Clifford is a researcher, scientist, and author. He received his PhD from Yale University's Department of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry. He has authored more than 50 books. He has also been granted more than 600 U.S. patents. His work and his research have been featured on media outlets such as CNN, Wired, The New York Times, and now he's here with us on The Human Experience. Cliff, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time. Welcome to HXP. Great to be here. Thanks. So Cliff, I mean, I'm, there's so much I, I want to go over tonight. I'm really, I've been really excited about this interview and covering this book. But before we get into the book and, and artificial intelligence, let's... Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, tell us kind of how you got into this work. Uh, you know, a, a brief introduction, if you will. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've been publishing, as you said, over 50 books. I'm interested in computers and creativity, and I've written books on the history of math and physics and medicine, things of that nature, and a lot of some wilder books we could get into. But AI particularly fascinated me because, you know, it's really at the a borderland of science and science fiction and it makes us question the limits of thought and the humanity's future well, what could be more interesting than that yeah for sure i mean i mean how does how does someone go about writing 50 books i mean that's quite a large number right yeah i think it's <laughs> it's my efficiency you know i don't know how people actually wrote uh, before the age of computers right R writing books uh with pencil and paper, though that must have been hard. At least, in in a way, AI has helped me write my books. At least a simple form of AI, right? Word processors and spell checkers and all the internet research I can do. Um, that's almost like an example of AI, simple form of AI being an assistant to me, the human, uh, not taking away from me in any way, but you know, augmenting me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean. And then 600 patents. I mean, writing a patent can't be an easy process, right? I mean, what what compelled you to sort of start inventing, you know, patents and writing them? 
Yeah, that, that also, um, I think, an example of my overall interest in uh, how to generate creative, creative ideas and, and creativity in general. When I was younger, you know, I used to play a lot of music and electronic music. I uh, got interested in using the computer as a tool for art and computer graphics. Um, with invention, it was sort of a natural extension of creativity. So in a way, I look at the, the producing inventions and patents almost like, you know, an artist would uh, paint a painting or a writer would write a poem. It's just another example of creativity. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so let's get into this book. You know, I was so excited getting this book because we get, we get a lot of different books, you know, here at the studio. And I mean, if a book can be sexy, this is the sexiest book that I've, I've ever received. I mean, it's, it's so nice from, from the smell when you smell it, it, it smells like vinyl, like new vinyl and and then it's illustrated, you know, and ordered chronologically. I mean, how did you how did you come about the design process for this book? I know I know people can't see the book right now, but you know, just take my word for it. Yeah, that's a format that I've enjoyed for a few books. I mean, as you said, this, the AI book is my most recent one, but I like the idea of one page of full color photo or figure versus a page of text. And that way it makes the subject come alive. And you really can't get too bored with that kind of format because if one topic doesn't interest you, you flip the page and go to the next. And mm-hmm. as you said, it's it's chronological. So you can, you can start out with ancient times and work your way up to the last entry this, this year. So it gives you an idea of the, the range of AI through humanity's uh, thinking about uh, – beings that are more powerful than us robots automatons things of that nature right yeah you know when i think for some people when you mention the word or the words artificial intelligence there's you know like there's a there's a barrier or a signal goes up you know their anxiety increases or something you know it's like it's like when electricity when people were talking about electricity people were maybe a, a little bit hesitant you know to talk about this mysterious energy in the wall that you know you're going to plug stuff into so let's define that i mean like what is what is your definition of artificial intelligence yeah i think the simplest definition which i use is apparently intelligent behavior in machines so what is intelligence in humans and it usually deals with accomplishing goals problem solving learning so if a machine can mimic that you know, if, it, if it, it it looks like the machine is doing that, or some other kind of system, we call that artificial intelligence. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, is there? Does it surprise you that people are worried about this technology? Are you worried about it? Well, on the scale of worries that we could have today, right? There's, I, I would say, there's a lot more worries with the planet that we might. Uh, you know, put higher than AI, you know, from even from nuclear weapons to water crises. But yes, if we drill down to AI itself, I think one of the concerns is uh, what I call brittleness with AI. In other words, AI can be marvelously effective at detecting all kinds of patterns and having vision systems and self-driving cars, uh, looking at medical images. But at least today... It can be fairly easily deceived, confused, 
Um, it could be confused by a, a bad person. For example, putting a sticker on a stop sign that makes a car suddenly think it's a speed limit sign and drive right through it. You know, mm-hmm. even though a human could look at that stop sign with a little colorful sticker and, they, you know, we know it's a stop sign. But it's easy to confuse the AIs and uh, researchers are working to make that better. But that's a concern. It's one, you know, one concern. We can talk about others. But I would call that brittleness. Hmm. Okay. So it was it was John McCarthy that defined, that coined the term in 1955. That, that was his definition of AI, right? That's That's who came up with it? Exactly. He's a John McCarthy, computer scientist. He had a very famous conference at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Um, he put out the call in 1955 to send out invitations, and that's where he used the term artificial intelligence. And a year later, they had this conference. And he used a different definition similar to the one I gave. You know, it's machines. He says the machines solving the kinds of problems now reserved for humans. Uh, it's improving themselves. And so if you see a machine behaving in a way we would call intelligent, if a human were doing it, hmm. he would call that artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. So, you know, in the book, I mean, like I said, you, you address this chronologically. I mean, so what is the first record of humans sort of connecting with machines, even if it's in a sort of organic way? I mean, how, how, like, you, you bring up this tic-tac-toe machine that, or game. How does tic-tac-toe, you know, relate to artificial intelligence? I mean, how do we, how do we, how do we get to point, from point A to point B, I guess? Right. That's a surprise. What is tic-tac-toe doing the book? But one of the biggest surprises I had while writing the book is we think of AI, you know, today, the computer age, robots, you know, movies, Terminators, that's AI. But actually, legends of AI in the form of uh, uh, ancient robots, they didn't call them robots, but robot-like beings, goes back to the ancient Greeks. There was some some uh, creature called Talos in ancient Greek 400 BC that circled the island of Crete, but it was like a robot in protecting the island. Back to tic-tac-toe, that goes back even further to about 1300 BC with three in a row games. You know, mm-hmm. tic-tac-toe, you, you put three things in a row and try to, to try to uh, succeed. They, that, those type of games date back at least to ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I start the book with tic-tac-toe, because it's an easy game with easy rules. It's been um, subject to a student studying it through game trees, which are like pathways through all the moves. You know, how, how hard is it to make a computer that beats, uh, beats uh, well, or at least ties anyone in tic-tac-toe? Mm-hmm. It's not so hard, but it's a good start. And then I mentioned, well, what about tic-tac-toe played in 3D and higher dimensions? And in the 60s, there was a great example of a creative streak where someone said, uh, let me build a tic-tac-toe playing machine just with these little matchboxes with beads and every time uh, this collection of boxes, it was like over 300 boxes, uh, made the correct move in a sense. You reward it by putting the right color beads and you can punish it by removing beads. And just by putting beads in boxes, it, it was almost like a simple form of AI that learned to play tic-tac-toe. Hmm. So it's, it's, more of, it's more of a game process less than you know, like binary, establishing binary. 
initially. Yeah, it's an example, very simple challenge that people have addressed in, you know, interesting ways. We wouldn't really call it AI today so much because usually we what we call AI, once something becomes very common, like talking to your Amazon Echo, well, that's AI, but now we say, Ah, talking to a device is, is so routine, that's not AI, and you move on to the next thing computers can't do. So, you know, what we really think of as AI keeps changing through the years. But I, even with tic-tac-toe, I remember someone made a tic-tac-toe playing machine out of 10,000 tinker toy pieces, mm-hmm. you know, those little toys that kids played with, play with. So you can make machines that play tic-tac-toe in uh, different ways, um, and that's a good kickoff for the book where I saw I show a three-dimensional tic-tac-toe with, with beads on rods. And we sort of work up uh, from there. I mean, games have often been tests of uh, AI. And you, many people probably have heard of the, the Deep Blue Chess Championship. Where, mm-hmm, sure. where the comp- yeah, so games have been – of course, chess is much more difficult than tic-tac-toe, but – you can work your way up through history through different games that uh, the computer has become able to do through time, and that's that's a form of AI. We're we're going to go back into history, but I mean, when you look at the the problem of consciousness, when when we're sort of you know looking at the human brain, it's it's hard for us as to now in in modern times just to understand you know how the brain generates consciousness. So. You know, is it possible that we could inject consciousness into a machine, have it think, have it self, have it self-aware enough to sort of process and and exist? You know, it, 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 it's kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, that's a big question. We can call these things intelligent in many ways because they can solve problems and play chess and all that. But then you're raising a good question. Are these really conscious? Conscious? You know, and what does consciousness mean? Usually when we say conscious, we mean more than just solving problems. We mean uh, an entity that has feelings and can reflect on itself. But I have various ent- uh, entries in the book that touch on these philosophical topics. One is called the consciousness mill that goes back to the 17, 1714 where philosopher was talking about, you know, imagine a factory, a mill that could had so many parts it could act, you could think it's thinking, right? But if you went inside the mill, you just see parts rubbing and moving, moving against each other. You wouldn't actually see the thought. And so that got the philosophers thinking. But if we think that consciousness is the result of uh, the patterns of the brain cells mm-hmm. in our brain and their interrelationships and the signals they're sending, then I could conceive of consciousness existing in other hardware. I mean, in a way, we're machines running on the wet hardware of our brain. I could see it running in electronic or, or other kinds of uh, devices. In fact, if you want to stretch your audience's thinking, uh, you could imagine a, a conscious entity just made out of bicycle parts. Because if you think of brain cells communicating, bicycle parts can communicate. Of course, a brain made out of bicycle parts that's thinking and conscious would have to be huge to get the complexity of a a human brain. But that's the way some scientists think that, well, if you're running on hardware now, maybe not today, but in the future, you'll be able to run something so intricate and and, uh, complex that you would call it thinking and conscious. Hmm. 
It's, it's fascinating. This whole subject is so interesting to me. I, I was looking through your book and I, I found out that, I mean, I guess Da Vinci had his hands in literally everything that you can imagine. He's probably one of the smartest people to ever exist. And I guess he created a robotic knight. I mean, you've illustrated <laughs> this. He has, you know, these gears and levers in which the knight kind of moves automatically. Am I t- interpreting this correctly? Yeah, not too many people know about this. Around 1495, Da Vinci actually designed a robot knight. As you said, I put a picture in the book. No one knows if he actually went all the way and perfectly created it, but he left designs for it. And it sat up, opened and closed its arm, it moved its head. It was driven by cables. It It had armor. And it actually inspired other people a little bit later in the Middle Ages to create mechanical automatons. Again, they didn't have the word robot back then, but mechanical either uh, animals or people that moved in lifelike ways. And da Vinci was one of the early starts for that. Hmm. Okay. So was there a single person that you would classify as the most important in regards to paving the way towards artificial intelligence? Well, in ancient days, I mean, we could talk about these really f- cool and some almost funny machines, but you you, pro- you you know that looked like ducks or looked like other animals or looked like people and did amazing things. But if we if we don't want to say uh, that's really AI and uh, you know thinking, right? You know, which which is kind of simple. I mean, one of the famous people along the pathway was Alan Turing, who uh, thought quite a bit about the philosophy of. Uh, intelligence and thinking and he sort of how would you how would you test if a computer is really thinking uh, he was in in uh, you know around the 1950s that he did a lot of his work and then later uh, many researchers design worked on neural networks which are uh, artificial they're not like brain neural networks but they're artificial uh, constructs that, that have a little resemblance to what goes on in your brain. And that's what is today driving near miracles with um, AI detecting patterns. Um, you know, one example is you can give an AI an X-ray of the lung mm-hmm. and it can, it can diagnose pneumonia as good as a radiologist, maybe even better in, in some cases. That's done through these things called neural networks, which give the computer eyes or vision and looks at patterns. Hmm. Okay. So we're kind of modeling, you know, this this machine off after our own brain. Then what's not to say that it will or won't have, you know, our our same sort of, you know, failures or pitfalls. Yes. Well, that's one of the worries is the brittleness, like we were talking about. Um, in fact, there's one entry called adversarial patches. Just to illustrate it, researchers have trained, uh, as just an example, the uh, computer to recognize a banana. But if you put this one little psychedelic patch next to it, all of a sudden it says with 100% clarity, no, that's a toaster. That's, you know, you said pitfalls. This is an example of the pitfalls today that uh, we have to be careful of because we're going to be turning more and more of our decision making over to AI. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think scientists will get a lot of the kinks out, but I think we'll also become brittle, right? Already we use GPS and cars to help us get around. 
and we're probably losing map making, map reading, and sense of direction uh, to some extent. So humans are losing some of their skills. I think for the most part, it's okay because the AIs are marvelous helpers. But I'm sure we're going to lose a little bit as we turn more of the decision making to AIs. I mean, what do you think would shock people the most to – I mean in in this study of history that you've done, I mean there's there's been a few I – mean, there was a defecating robot duck that shocked <laughs> a lot of people. What was – tell us about that. Yeah, that was from 1738. That's – this will, I think, make your audience smile a little bit. <laughs> but it's a good example of even in the 1700s how people were looking at the line between the living and the mechanical. So a French watchmaker – he created this duck. It had hundreds of moving parts. People from all over came to see it. And it, it moved in very lifelike ways. It, you know, it, it, it moved its head. It played with water with its bill, flapped its wing. It, it ate wings. It quacked. It gulped food. But here's the funny part. After eating, the, uh, the remains of digested food were eliminated uh, out, out the back of the duck. You know, I thought that was, that was kind of funny. Um, okay. So. But again, it has a serious part that there was interest in it and that they could create such a thing. And the the French watchmaker who created this duck, he went on to create a flute player that played the flute that looked human, uh, went on to create weaving machines that would weave. And of course, the, the human townspeople didn't like that one bit and start throwing stones at him. Right? Could, that, could, that could take away some jobs. But that, that's an example entry of a very curious thing uh, in, the, in the book and the history of AI because it was a very simple form of something that seemed a little bit intelligence, uh, intelligent uh, even back then. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, you know, something that I noticed about your book, and I think this is interesting. I mean, do you do you believe that there is some sort of you know technological sort of explosion that's happening within the last you know three hundred years or so? Because a tenth of your book is based on you know the fourteen hundreds and earlier, but then the rest of your book is in the eighteen hundreds and nineteen sixties and and onwards. So it seems like we're getting closer and closer to kind of, you know, solving this paradox. Yes, I think that's that definitely true. It all took off relatively recently because of the computer. And as the computers get faster and faster and faster, that's enabling the, the AIs to do more and more amazing things. Because sometimes to train, train AIs, it takes a lot of power and you know millions thousands millions of examples to to train an ai to do something and that's be as you're seeing that's due to the rise of the computer and some people uh, predict that as the ais get better and better right there we're going to put them to the task of well can you help us design an ai that's even a little better than yourself because now the ai is becoming pretty intelligent and uh that can lead to recursive self-improvement and that's called uh, the super intelligence explosion and some people are worried about that or some people if they're not worried they're speculating what that might mean if computers get to be um, generally intelligent right right now they're very intelligent for specific tasks mm -hmm. like playing chess chess and go mm -hmm. so they're not really like a human in, in it, their human's general capacity. But what if they do become like that? And people, you know, that's, uh, people talk about that and, and have some concerns. Right. Yeah. I mean, I could see why that would be a concern. So, I mean, Cliff, do you believe in, you know, something like the soul? 
Do you believe in that? Um, uh, yeah, uh, well, the that also gets to about God, right? And I think the closest I get to, to that is um, there are facets of the universe we can never understand, right? If you, if you look at a monkey's brain and a human brain, well, they're not all that much different, but think of how much more we can understand and contemplate than a monkey. You know, a monkey can't understand poetry and black holes and symbolic logic and calculus, right? And we can, you know, at least some humans can think think about that. That leads me to believe there's so much more to the universe we can't understand because we're shielded by this three pounds of, of wet matter in our in our skull. Mm-hmm. And it's that, it's on that line between what was knowable, what we might never know, that this sort of essential mystery, that, that can get you very close to the feeling of the divine, this feeling of the soul. Mm-hmm. And, and Alan Turing, the great, the great uh, computer scientist, he even speculated that uh, if there were a soul, uh, some of his colleagues were saying, wouldn't AI kind of go against that? Right. He said, no, he said, no not at all, because even if you could create an AI that was on par with humans, it wouldn't be taking away from God's power because the AI would be the home for the soul. He called them mansions for the soul. Just like if you produce a child, the child is a, a home for the soul. So people have talked about that. And though though my book, you know, that gets into some of the technology and the ancient legends, it does talk about some of this interesting philosophy as well. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it does. And yeah, I find it interesting because you know, it could machines have the neural capacity to have a connection to the divine. And if we are, you know, the mothers and fathers of, of these, uh, this new race of, you know, machine beings, then, you know, do we give, do we transfer that into them? Do we transfer that? Is it a concept or is it a measurable thing? I mean, these are interesting questions. I think that are more in the line of the philosophical understanding of what, artificial intelligence could or couldn't be yes you're touching on lots of interesting topics and along with what you just said there's one entry called a leak proof ai box and it gets gets about this concept of runaway ai growth growth yes in terms of consciousness and intelligence uh you know many people say well obviously they're going to surpass us you we could debate if it's in 30 years is it in 100 years but at some point that they're, you know, they they probably will. I, I at least that's what mm. my thinking, my thinking is. So people say, well, what if it became dangerous? This runaway AI growth, where they surpassed us in all things, and then could create, presumably, create even better AIs. Could if we ever created uh, one of these super intelligent AI, or an AI, you know, helped us create these this soup, would would it be prudent to confine it? To a box where you don't, in other words, you don't hook it up to the internet because you don't want it to escape. You want right. to study it. Yeah. And that, the entry on leak-proof AI box talks all about that. Could you really confine such a super intelligence? And if you want to talk about, there's just some fun things like there's going to be human gatekeepers for the AI, right? Wouldn't hmm. the AI try to bribe them? You could say, look, I can cure diseases. I can give you amazing melodies and videos. Um, if you say, well, we're not going to, we're going to cut off all communication. You know, maybe it could use, uh, you know, change the fan speed of the hardware and commu- <laughs> communicate through code that way. Mm-hmm. And of course, 
you wouldn't cut it off totally because it, what good would be the AI if humans couldn't interact or learn from it at all? Mm-hmm. Um, so people have talked about could you confine an AI? And many have come to the conclusion is you really couldn't because if you made something that thought a million times faster than uh, humans, eventually it could figure out a way to uh, get out, get, you know, escape. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of more worried about runaway humans at this point. I mean, it feels like our the ecologically it's a it's a nightmare out there. I mean, we still struggle with poverty, disease. I mean, we there's there's a conflict happening right now in Syria. I mean, there's there's all these different things happening with humans that you know it. it I don't I don't know. It becomes problematic. I think, but I mean, there are benefits. But there was this experiment where they released these two computer programs and they started, I guess they were learning from social media and they, they started talking to each other, right? You, you've heard about this, right? Yeah, and I've seen, and there's also been some fascinating movies with so, computers start linking up and talking to each other. So, but, I mean, they, okay, there was there was a couple different exper- experiments that came out with this, but they, there was, one of them was a robot that became like a Nazi. Like she was like this crazy Nazi just learning through social media and then in the other experiment there were two I guess two programs that started talking to each other in a secret language right yeah I'm trying to think of the exact um, example I remember that from a movie and I'm sure it's conceivable now but you said you're right they uh, a company released the chatbot onto the web to learn and just through learning through people's badness, it became sexist, uh, uh, Nazi, anti-Semitic, and they had to like pull it down in a day. Because they didn't—I don't know why—but they didn't realize that it would pick up all the um, badness of humans and people pranking it, probably. And so immediately they had to take it down. But you know, you're getting onto a good topics of the ethics of AI mm-hmm. because uh, you don't normally think about ethical considerations, but there's so much we have to think about with the ethics of AI and one one neat example is with self-driving cars right if you if we ever make a perfectly autonomous car where you can just sit back relax doesn't even need a steering wheel it's eventually going to have to make ethical decisions and one example is if a collision is inevitable let's say there's a a kid in the road and it's either going to hit the the kid the pedestrian or it's going to so it could save the pedestrian or save the human that's an ethical decision. When I say save the human, I mean save the passenger in the car, right? It's going to have to make that choice. Someone's going to have to program that in in some sense or it's going to have to learn it. Or would it kill, you know, uh, five elderly persons more so than three young people? I mean, it sounds funny, but if if collisions are unable uh, and inevitable, which, you know, they will be, not everything you can avoid, um, it's going to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And then – you know, going beyond that, you know, do you want judges or therapists to be AIs? I mean, there's pros and cons, mm-hmm. right? They say judges, human judges, right before lunch, they render different verdicts because they're hungry, <laughs> you know, then, right. uh, then, right. then you would think, well, an AI doesn't get emotional, it doesn't get hungry, but you'd probably be a little nervous giving, giving the decisions to an AI, mm-hmm. uh, other examples are lethal autonomous weapons like drones. Mm-hmm. Right now, at, at least for the America, there's always a human in the loop before a drone in war makes a kill. You know, some human has to sort of say go uh, for the final right. uh, shoot. Right. But it wouldn't be hard for a country to make it fully autonomous 
you know, you give it facial recognition so it knows a person, it recognizes the person, and it decides to kill without a human. Right now we're saying don't do it. That's unethical. Uh, but I don't know if that's going to stay that way forever, particularly what, we can say that for all countries in the world. And it sounds terrible now, but what if, what if for some reason giving the AI the decision – the final decision actually reduce casualties because it could be more more accurate than waiting for you know a kid who's tired to give the the command and you know to kill. Um, would you then say it's okay? That's very ethically uh, fraught with you know uh, discussion. It's problematic, yeah, it's problematic. I mean, Problema- problematic. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets it it touches on you know some moral, so ethical grounds that you know we really have to look at before we press the power on button, you know, on these machines. I think, and I think, I think the biggest concern lately, you know, and and not necessarily with artificial intelligence, but in the movement towards the push of art, artificial intelligence, has been just computers and how they've been taking away jobs from from humans. Right. I mean, I was I was at the store the other night. I was at the grocery store the other night and I had never experienced this before. I've never seen this before. But there was this automated, you know, like mop mopping robot and it could sense where I was like I tried testing it because it was like my first contact with one of these machines. And it, you know, it was able to judge kind of where I was and, and it stopped when I got in its way. So, you know, there wasn't a human behind that. And I, I think people are worried about. You know, it's it's a. I think it's a logical concern to think about. You know, where are the jobs? Where is the money going to go for these? Yes, that's an excellent question. Uh, obviously, jobs are going to be affected. Uh, if you go back in time, I have these photos of of uh, Fifth Avenue in New York City in 1900. If they're interesting photos. You you see, it's all nothing but horses and you know horse drawn carriages. And then 1913, it's nothing but cars except for maybe like one horse. <laughs> so in that short span of time, we went from horses to cars. Now, that naturally affected the jobs of all the people who took care of horses, and that was a problem. But you could say horses on the streets cause problems. You know, So what's it going to mean for, for uh, humans today? I think initially we're going to see jobs where AI is – part of the job we were working with ai will re- start replacing jobs where where you're not working with ai um i mean physicians already will probably start using ai tools like we we're talking about for x-rays and looking at ca- uh, car- heart cardiograms mm-hmm. uh looking at skin possible skin cancers um already the the ais are very helpful but they don't replace the physician uh, because it, it's sort of a synergy between the two but you're right jobs are eventually going to change currently it's hard for the ais to deal with um, non-routine tasks or the unexpected and most jobs do have unexpected parts no matter how routine sure. you know sure. uh, but eventually you know it's going to keep changing and changing do, I mean, do you think that it could go in either direction? Do you think that, you know, there's on on one side, like there's two roads that maybe that it goes down. On one side, you know, we go down this road and robots live alongside humans in this, you know, utopian sort of, you know, place that is a better world. Or we go the, the other direction with that, you know, where 
We've weaponized these machines. They've, ta- they've, you know, to the point of them taking over, and they consider humans a threat in some way to the Earth or to them. I mean, I, I think. Do you do you think one is more likely than the other? I mean, generally, I think most people would like to think that. You know, okay, robots and artificial intelligence, it's going to make my life better. You know, like Tesla and their driving cars. You know, that's making the world a better place, right? It's more convenient, right? Right. It'll make uh, driving safer. We already have all sorts of assists in the modern cars, you know, when you're drifting out of the lane and gonna, or you're about to hit something. Uh, it's going to help medicine be better in, in terms of disease detection and diagnosing things. Um, so right now, I'm not worried about like the movie The Terminator where they just take over the world. I'm more, <laughs> con- uh, I'm more concerned with things like they're they're or they're going to change if they haven't already done it. Are what's real? We won't know what's real already, right? With news and photos, you, you know, you don't know what's faked. But they're getting better and better about creating video where anyone could be made to be look like they're saying anything and the audio will be perfect and this video will be perfect. We won't know what's real anymore. Uh, you can see starts of that already. And you, I, you know, I predict a new job called a reality certifier. These, these people and maybe other A's will tell you or try to tell you what's real or not, but then they're going to have to be certified because you know, you don't know if they're being tricked. So, there are there are various concerns, mm-hmm. like what's real, the jobs. Uh, on the whole, I'm thinking it's going to be marvelous for humanity. They're going to help us in many many ways, inspire us. Uh, they're inspiring us because they can tell us things that we have no idea how they came to the conclusion. Uh, that's very mysterious, but that's a little dangerous. But to me, it's, it inspires us because then we'll be inspired to learn. My favorite example is if you can show the retina, the, in other words, the back of the eye with the blood vessels, to an AI, and it can tell you things about the person that the trained ophthalmologist can never tell you. Mm-hmm. One example is um, it can tell if you're – just by looking at the, ret- the blood vessels, if you're a man or a woman. Now, of course, yeah, that's funny. You can look at a person and kind of tell that. But no, an ophthalmologist <laughs> – ophthalmologists can't look at the blood vessels in your eye and tell you that but the AIs can with startling accuracy and no one knows how they do it isn't hmm. that interesting it's like, yeah. it's like you know if you've ever got interested in the topic of divination these are where people through the ages have looked at patterns in the sky and you know they sacrificed animals and looked at patterns on the liver to predict the future and make forecasts in a way, the AI is a, a, a modern diviner, mm-hmm. sometimes in an inscrutable way, telling us things. And um, some people say, well, Cliff, you, you can't rely on AIs if you don't understand how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a point. But I think uh, the most important thing is to just to test them for accuracy. In other words, if I told you this is going to be... 99% accurate diagnosis and your doctor will be 50%, but we're not so sure how it's doing it. You still might go with the AI if it's tested in it and it's like 100% accurate, even, no, even though you don't know exactly how it's doing it. Right. I mean, there was, there's, a, there's a person that you brought up in your book that I really connected with and resonated with. I'm not sure why. Uh, his name is Samuel Butler, 
and I get I mean this this guy was existing in 1863 and writing about this. He wrote a book called Darwin Among the Machines, and there's a quote that you cite in in your book, and it says we Samuel Butler says this, and he says. Quote, we ourselves are creating our own successors. In the course of ages, we will find ourselves the inferior race. Yes, that was his Haunting. essay. Yeah, and back in 1863, imagine that was before, oh, wow. before our modern computers. Yeah, that was Darwin among the machines. And he gave some early insights into the future. He thought about self-improving machines and how they'd be, become more and more intelligent. And... Uh, he said, uh, for those people who say, well, it can never be conscious, you know, he said, his example was, look at a mollusk, you know, a clam or something like that. That doesn't appear to have much consciousness, does it? But yet through the ages, through the ages, through evolution, consciousness did evolve. He said, similarly, with machines, consciousness will evolve. Right. Right. And then, I mean, if we jump forward a little bit further than that, I mean, you bring up uh, Nikola Tesla, and, and I've read about this experiment, which he called the borrowed mind. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Nikola Tesla was a very interesting and quirky individual, but he's in the book because he did some something that people thought about as an early step in AI. And way, way back, about 1898, he made a radio-controlled boat. Uh, which he could, uh, he made a big demonstration in the pool. He put the boat in it. Now we say, well, what's so big deal about a radio-controlled boat? But back then, people saw that and you know screamed. They thought it was magic or telepathy. Some people said, was well, a trained monkey was somehow involved guiding <laughs> in the boat? But he said, no. This is the first race of automatons to work for humans. And he said, like you said, it was a borrowed mind. It took his mind, his intention, and the boat followed it. So he, in some sense, started thinking that that even humans were kind of automatons that responded to signals. Um, So he even got into the idea, even in 1898, about in the future, uh, we're kind of like machines, and this would develop just like Darwin among the machines. It will eventually evolve. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, it seems like a good idea with all the best intentions. You know what I mean? Like when, when you have, when, when you have intentions for something and they're good, it, it seems great. But then, you know, later down the road, you're like, oh, okay, this was a huge turning point in human history. You probably should have prevented this. I mean, I was looking, I was watching a interview with Elon Musk and he's been a huge proponent of, you know, anti- artificial intelligence and i'm sure you know about this and he's been sort of he i mean i think in the interview that i saw he was like it's too late you know i i warned humanity i warned society it's too late now we're, we're kind of in in it i mean and he touches on being in a simulation and, and i know you touch on this as well i mean let's talk about that a little bit you know could we be existing in a computer simulation right now yeah, that's a that's a fascinating topic, and uh, first of all, some people will be very skeptical and say, "Well, what? Is, how could we be living in the simulation?" But think about, in a way, we're already being simulated on the neural hardware of our brain. At least many scientists would say that we're, the brain is giving rise to you know our thoughts. We can't have these thoughts without the brain, at least. And if we can, if we can someday create true AIs, 
these will be like thinking beings that live in simulated spaces. So now the next question is, could we already be in a, living in a simulation? Uh, you know, already scientists are creating very lifelike patterns based on very simple rules in a computer and these these creatures, which are nothing but little mathematical patterns, right? They explore, they evolve, they multiply, they interact with the environment. If an advanced civilization could take this type of thing further and further and further, the idea is that they might create a simulation. It may not be perfect, mm -hmm. but they might create a simulated world. And then if they create several simulated worlds, that means for every advanced civilization in the real world, there'd be many uh, simulations. And just probabilistically, that would lead you to believe possibly, if you believe with the premise that it's possible, that we're in a simulation. And uh, well, that's like the movie The Matrix, where other movies have gone into this. But there are scientists who take this, including Elon Musk, right, take, take this concept very seriously, that, uh, at least the possibility. Hmm. Okay, very succinct, succinct with that response answer. I mean, I again, you know, the it's interesting to me the idea of you know sort of you know just contemplating this idea that perhaps we are in a simulation right now. I mean, it's a good thought experiment if you haven't done that, if you haven't conducted that for yourself. And it's interesting. So let's get into transhumanism. You touch on this a little bit, and. You know, we've had transhumanists on the show. We've had people who, you know, study technology. They're they're hyped about this. They love this idea of transferring their own consciousness into a machine, so that you know, for the the goal of acquiring immortality. Yes, let's let's talk about transhumanism. The term actually is kind of old. It was kind of coined in 1957 by biologist Julian Huxley, hmm. but. Today, when people talk about transhumanism, they usually mean uh, any kind of technology to enhance the mental and physical capacities of humans. And I believe, I think along with others, that biologists will soon understand the, the biology of aging. In, in, totally, they'll understand it. Hmm. And once you understand something like that, the next step wouldn't be that hard to prevent aging. So in this century we'd probably ha have the ability to become immortal. And that raises all sorts of concerns. Um, you know, and also, if, you know, I like to talk about the, uh, maybe your audience would like this, the philosoph philosophical consequences of this. If you could survive indefinitely, let's say a thousand years, would you, you, you actually persist, persist? In other words, we change a little every day, so... You and you tomorrow, and a year, and I'm me, and I, but gradually changes will enter, right? In a thousand years, you would perhaps be totally different. So the you of you today would not, it'd be like a sandcastle, and the ocean keeps wearing it down. Eventually, you would not be persisting, and you'd be something else if you, if you really had a thousand year capacity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, we're, t we're talking about, so, oh, sorry, I thought you were finished. No, it's an interesting thought experience. Yes, that experiment. So, I mean, so yeah, of course, there's going to be an evolution in you know your thinking and your thinking process if you're living for that long. And you know, we've we've had authors on the show that talk about you know if you if you look at 
the human body, the, the telomeres in the, in the body and DNA, and it, it's you know, instructing the human body to, to age and get older. And and one of the authors that we had on the show, he thinks that you know the ultimate disease for human beings is getting old, aging. Yes, I mean, and there's many diseases associated with aging, which we surely want to cure, like Alzheimer's and and cancer. Basically, you know, right? Your age age is the biggest predictor for all these uh, uh, things. Oh, later, if there's time, we can even talk about how the computers can predict when you'll die. <laughs> but but um, mm. yes, yeah, so that's a, it, that's interesting that. Uh, there's already people looking through nanotechnology and robots and biology of aging, uh, manipulation of the telomeres like you're talking about as uh, ways of understanding and uh, at least putting off aging. Another idea transhumanists may get into, it touches on the simulations like we were talking about. Mm -hmm. If you know, virtual realities are getting better and better, um, uh, here's a question. If you, if you could upload yourself you know, this month and be guaranteed a thousand years of living in a simulation, perfect health, adventures beyond imagination, romance, uh, creativity, <laughs> uh, very real, no pain, uh, no worries, but not boredom either. That's a hard thing to turn down if that ever became possible. You, mm. you, might, say, you might say, Cliff, I'm never going to leave the real world. And of course, we might not now because we care about our loved ones, and I wouldn't want to live loved ones behind. Sure. But let's say, let's say you were alone, and you, you know, you're 80, 90, whatever age you are, and someone says you can leave this world and go into the simulation. That that'd be something hard to turn down. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> man. I, I'm just, I like to stay skeptical, I guess. You know. So let's let's get into aliens. Let's get into alien contact and what that would look like because this is something that you cover in the book and I'm curious I'm curious about you know what would that what would that appear as because if if there is if there are other civilizations out there and let's just by sheer math alone let's just presume that that is a possible plausible scenario right I mean do you think even if they have a thousand years ahead of us you know in evolution technologically I mean, surely they've created machines and, you know, machines don't get tired. They don't require sleep. They don't require food. So, I mean, there's, there's so many advantages to using a machine for space exploration. So do you think that if we were to make contact with some sort of, you know, off world species that it would happen through a machine? Yes. Good. That's interesting. Let's first talk about what's the possibility of alien life outside of uh, the earth right? my thinking is that life is probably pretty common given given the immensity of the galaxies and the universe because we've seen on on earth it has evolved in the most bizarre environments it can live in boiling water and it can live in ice and complete darkness so i believe life is probably common but the question is is intelligence and spacefaring life common the answer to that is it might not be so common. It might be quite rare because if you look at life on Earth, maybe 50 billion species arose. Only one acquired technology, right, us. And mammals like us are not necessarily the most successful because 95% of the species are invertebrates. So intelligence is not guaranteed. 
But let's go beyond it. Let's say you could, you have intelligent life forms that actually have technology. I think what you touched on is a good point that our first contact and first signals would possibly or be likely be from machines because they're not physically constrained. And there's another reason. Uh, there's one idea is that the organic life, like us, is just a thin layer of the evolution mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. And the next layer that extends forever is the computer mechanical life form, the AIs. So if we receive signals, it's very possible it's actually alien AIs that we're getting the signals from. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense and it, it, it you know, poses a lot of questions. I mean, there's, I mean, we send, we do this ourselves. I mean, we put, you know, Curiosity's, uh, NASA's Curiosity on Mars. It's uh, the rover, you know, so, so we're sending robots into space. You know, why not, why not the other way around as well? Right. And even Curiosity has some simple forms of AI in, um, like 2015, they uploaded a new, new software to it. This is that little wheeled rover that's running around Mars. And they gave it an AI so it could, on its own, select rocks that look interesting by some criteria and then study them, analyze them. It has lasers that zap them and do things to study them. And I think AI is going to be more and more a part of these robot explorers like the Curiosity rover because there's going to be times where the AIs or even a out of contact with humanity, right? When, when Mars rotates, it's on the other side. You know, it can't necessarily wait for humans if something very interesting popped up. Um, so we're already putting AI, even though sim it's simple, uh, but we're putting AI in, um, on other planets right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really intriguing. And I think it, you know, it poses a lot of different questions for us to ask ourselves as far as, you know, what do we define as life? And, you know, how, how do we define consciousness? Is it something that's local to the brain? Is it a neurological mechanism? Could we reflect that into a machine? Could we create a circuit that mimics consciousness? Could we give this consciousness a regard to the divine and divinity? And these are big questions that I think it, it's going to be an interesting, you know, 100, 200, 500 years. Yes. <laughs> you, like that you like that answer? Yes. The, the, uh, but what you're saying is right. One line of thinking is that if, if you believe in you know, a mechanical universe where we, we, we evolved, we're, we're made out of physical matter, we're made of brain cells, but that if we could evolve on, you know, using the laws of physics and atoms and molecules and that uh, – there's no reason you couldn't embody everything in another kind of physical form. And that when I say anything, I mean intelligence, right. creativity, uh, if you want to talk about souls, souls too, because it would finally get to the level of complexity where it would be doing things like we're, we're doing. Of course, sometimes you don't know if you're talking to a zombie that's just simulating consciousness and feelings hmm. or if it, if it really does have feelings and consciousness. I mean, that's a big feeling, of uh, an area of debate. But over hundreds of years, you know, I think something on, along these lines will evolve. I'm sure I've had contact with those zombies on Twitter. Sometimes they, they tweet at us. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I want to switch gears a little bit because I, I feel like somehow these things are connected, but 
I'm not exactly sure how, but I know you, I mean, you've written so many books on so many different topics, and one of those topics happens to be DMT. And I mean, I'm not sure what it is about DMT. We've had Rick Strassman on the show a couple times, and I mean, it does seem to be this sort of spiritual molecule that, you know, opens this sort of gateway into hyper reality, hyper dimensional reality, something that is larger than our, you know, current awareness and, and consciousness, whatever we're picking up now. So, I mean, what is, I mean, you, you wrote about this, what are, what is your, your take on DMT? Yes, I, and I actually met doc, uh, Dr. Rick Strassman. He did a lot of clinical studies of DMT, and I have the, probably the weirdest title book that I've written, and I have a lot of strange titles. The one that covers the DMT is called Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves. <laughs> <laughs> but I talk about the science and the legends and, and everything of D, DMT. D, DMT is dimethyltryptamine, and it causes visions that uh, users experience and it's as if the users enter a completely different universe Mm -hmm. and they do so quickly with no cessation of consciousness consciousness or quality of awareness of course what they see can sometimes uh, defy you know verbal and visual description but what i find most about the dmt experience is that there are some common themes about what people see not everyone but many Mm -hmm. they sometimes see jeweled city cities and sparkling palaces there's a lot of examples of temples and objects of glittering gold and then there's entities some some of these entities are called machine elves some look like insects and praying mantises and the fact that many people without coaching you know from different walks of life see these different Visions, but similar themes lead you to believe that there's something very interesting going on. Some people would say it's entering a real reality. Some people say it's telling us something about the structure of the brain. Either way, even if it's just telling us something about how brains are engineered, I think that's fascinating because maybe brains were engineered. And maybe the reason we like creating palaces and temples and we're delighted by sparkling gold hmm. says something about our brains. I mean, even insects and birds sometimes create these very ornate uh, – uh, well, birds can create these ornate nests with fairies and shells and berries. They look beautiful. Um, there's something – and of course, there's survival value in some of this stuff. But you know, there might be something about the – the brains of evolving creatures, particularly human, humans, that are inclined to see these visions and do certain things. It, it's really an amazing area of research. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for covering that. I'm, I'm really glad that you did. I mean, that, that's kind of the end of my line of questioning. So we've got some questions here from the audience. And the first question is, uh, are we programming AI with our data? Are we teaching AI now as we use the internet, as we speak on social media? Could could that data be harvested and, and used to program artificial intelligence? Yes, that's the way AI does its thing. It learns from data. And typically, for an AI to be accurate, it leads, needs lots of data. 
That's one of the reasons why fancy AIs didn't exist. There's several reasons. One is you know, we have better computer hardware now, but one of one of the other reasons is we have lots of data today. So to, to, for an AI to be smart, it needs lots of data. You might be getting at, or the, the audience might be getting at, is it is it a risk? I mean, yes, there's a privacy risk, right? Different countries have different laws about what data is accessible. You know, face recognition, people it might be nervous in America, you know, that the AI cameras are everywhere and they can immediately tell who you are and if you're doing anything wrong. Maybe in other countries, uh, like China, they're more comfortable with the idea of AI and face recognition <laughs> being everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be good things. It can prevent crime. It's safety. I mean, it's not not necessarily bad, but there are privacy concerns. I mean, based on the protests that are happening in China, I'm not sure how happy they are with being facially recognized, like everywhere they go. I mean, having having this social sort of voting mechanism, social ranks, you know, based on sort of your behavior, it's it's a bit strange to me. It's it seems. Orwellian to me. Um, so, so moving on, I, I apologize. Uh, moving on, is there a way that we can keep AI transparent? Another question. And I think that gets at the uh, the inscrutability, the mystery of it. That yes, that's one area of active research, trying to have the AIs tell you how they're making their decisions, right? Um, I got into the example of looking at the back of the eye, looking at blood vessels, and we we said it could see if you're a man or woman, but it can do many other things in addition with diseases. But we can't tell for sure why. So scientists are looking at ways for the AI to explain it to you. So the question is, do you have to wait for it to explain it to you? Because I think it, it won't be, it won't always be possible. The AIs will be thinking like alien life forms, alien entities in ways we don't think. So if you say it must be able to explain how it's doing it, it'll cripple the AI because the highest performing systems might be the least explainable. So it's both a concern, but I think it's also something inspirational because if it makes a decision and it's 100% right, it'll inspire humans maybe to work with the AIs to try to learn what it's thinking and how it's doing the magic. Hmm. Okay. Now, Cliff, we've covered so much tonight. I think we've been all over the map with this. And hopefully it was organized enough to direct people to the at least the end of this point. Like, if you made it to this point in the conversation, thank you so much. Um, Cliff, is there anything that we could have covered that you felt I, sh- I should have brought up that I, I didn't, maybe? I think one thing, if, 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 if your listeners have any questions or want samples of anything or images, or any, they, can, they can contact me at my website, pickover.com, and that links to all my books, tells you how to get them. Um, and feel free to ask me questions while, you know, after we, we get off through, through the weeks. I'd be happy at least to try to you know, briefly answer them or point readers, uh, listeners in different directions. And I think... We covered, as you said, so much. I think the biggest surprise for me, or one of them, is the mysterious thinking of the AIs, but how far back in time humans have thought about you know, magical beings, robot-like entities. They've made parks that have you know, 
robot monkeys, robot animals. You know, you wouldn't. People don't really, I think, are not aware of how how fascinated humans have been with the line between the living and the artificial. And so I don't neglect that in the book. I, I start mm. working up through the legends and go to the most high-tech topics on neural networks and AI death predictors and all sorts of all sorts of interesting topics. Yeah, I mean I I really loved this book. It, it it's it's a really great read and I highly recommend it to anyone listening and interested in, in this. I mean I it's probably one of the most well-designed books that I've I've read, I've had my hands on without exaggeration. So um so how can people find your website, Cliff, please? I just think if they pick over as my last name, the good thing about having a strange last name is you're easy to find, right? So if they just go to pickover.com, then they have links and you know tells tells more about me and and my interests and, and and all about the books. Okay, guys, we're gonna wrap this up. Wow, what an amazing episode! Uh, if you made it to this point, like I said, thank you so much. My guest for this evening, Dr. Clifford A. Pickover, and the book is called Artificial Intelligence and Illustrated History. Phenomenal read. It's, it's such a nice book. I, I didn't know that creating books this nice was a thing. Um, it was, it's seriously, I, I mean that. Um, go pick this up. And, you know, if you're listening to this on the podcast version, thank you. Come subscribe to us on YouTube. That's where we do this live every week on Thursdays, every Thursday night. Um, if you, Also, if you guys can get over to iTunes, leave us a review. That would be really meaningful, and I would be very thankful for that. So thank you guys so much for listening. Your presence makes this show possible. We will see you guys next week. Thank you so much.